Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. As some of you know, uh, we're going to be going over this whole uh, next section of our goal series that we've been talking about. And Pastor Bo and I, we're going to do some team teaching so that we can kind of get different perspectives. As some of you know, uh, we did not grow up in a Christian background or Christian home. And so it will give us a little bit of a perspective. I, I also wanted to first uh, mention to those of us who are here for the very first time, uh, you are our honored guest, and we're so glad that you were able to make it, uh, especially through the invitation of your friend. Uh, I'm guessing that some of you have maybe never stepped inside of a church. And the good thing about this place is not really a church, because church is not a building, it's about people. So we're glad that you're here. Secondly, is that some of us might have been uh, one t- at one time gone to church, but for whatever reason, you've kind of strayed away or you decided to give up on Christianity. But I, I want to encourage us, uh, you can give up on religion in some sense, but never give up on Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to talk about, we want to share about, and that we want to exalt. So we're, we're thankful that we have this opportunity, Pastor Bo and I, that we can share uh, some of our experiences and some of these questions that you'll have. Uh, so those of us who have been with us for the whole summer, if you remember, what was our focus, what, what we were trying to focus in on this summer? We wanted to talk about discipleship, and as you know, discipleship is really a state of being a follower of Jesus Christ, growing in our relationship with Him, and it means that we are wanting to be more like Him and mature, and so that we can obey the commands that God has given us. And that's what we all want to see from all of our lives as followers of Jesus Christ. And that's why we decided to focus in on those four major categories, which is our relationship with God, our relationship with others and our relationship with accountability. And lastly, as we're going to close out this series in the next three weeks, we're going to talk about our relationship with the lost. Um, I I think it's also very important just to kind of um, maybe share a little bit about what we've been experiencing. Sometimes it's the members are always sharing with one another, but some of you don't know what we're going through and what we're learning and the things that God is teaching us. So I was going to have Pastor Bo share just really quickly one thing that you've been learning or you've been enjoying from the series that we've been covering so far? Yeah, I mean, one, one thing personally for me, uh, we, it seems like the relationship with God's part sermon series was so long ago. It feels like forever ago. It was only like a month ago or so. Um, but that really came out of an experience that I had uh, at a conference, and, and it was really a powerful encounter of realizing that uh, the gospel really is a solution to everything. And understanding the gospel in a, in a deeper way, in a more precise way, really can transform my own heart. And I think there have been so many moments where I realized, um, and we, for those of you who are here, we talked about idols. I realized there are still some idols in my heart that I still wrestle with and that I still need the gospel. Even though I'm a pastor, even though I'm a leader, I still need the gospel to really target in my heart and help me to overcome and see just different relationships in my life flourish. And so I think that's, that's been powerful for me. That's great. I think for me, something that's been really enjoyable is just doing life with other people. I think it's easy to be like the lead pastor and you're kind of separated from everyone else. But for me, I like to get my hands dirty and just be amongst the people. Uh, And when I say that, there's always a consequence to that because we played basketball at seven in the morning yesterday. 
and literally I could not move this morning. I was like, I, I knocked him down accidentally. <laughs> I think we need to do the forgiveness sermon again, you know. But yeah, Pastor Bo was playing really, really hard, really strong. So I had to sit out for a little bit because I was on the ground for a little bit there. But anyway, uh, just being able to spend some time with people and especially uh, my life group SWAT. Amen. Um, just being able to walk with these brothers and then also just to be able to share the struggles in my own life. And I've been really enjoying my LCGs that I have. And so I'm thankful that God has used this summer to help me to keep on growing in my relationship with God as well. So I wanted to just start off as we're talking about this relationship with the lost. Um, I think the best way to kind of put it is I'm, I'm wondering how many of you have seen this picture? The first one, let's how many have you seen this picture before? Now, those of you who are not familiar with this picture, uh, you'll, you'll see, because there's going to be more pictures. Here's some more. And then here's some more. And now things are looking very familiar. And then here you are. Uh, those of you who have been in our church, you're, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, those are the directions, because I see all those like arrows all over the place. And the thought was this, why in our day and age right now, where we have GPS, Google Maps, all that stuff, why in the world do we need to take pictures and then have arrows and directing us where to go? And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking that there, there are about five reasons I could come up with. And this is, a, in some sense, a value in our church. Some of these things are values in our church. The first thing is, I think people still get lost even though they have Google Maps on their phone. Can I get an amen? Is it just me? I mean, amen. Thank you. Gosh, I'm always insecure about that. I'm like, I have the map in front of me, but I cannot find it. And almost inevitably, every single person that's waiting for me or whatever, they're like, are you lost, pastor? And I get a little bit offended, and then, but I have to humble myself. I'm like, yes, I am. Please find me. <laughs> Another reason is that we want to eliminate any barriers that might hinder a person from finding the location. That's, that's part of our heart. We, we want to be able to bless people. And so we want to eliminate any barriers so that if people can't find it, we want to make sure that they can find it. The third reason is that we want to have visuals because it's oftentimes easier to identify things by visual landmarks instead of Google Maps. So that's another reason why we have these directions online with pictures and arrows on them. The fourth reason is we want to give people a heads up with specific information. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but there are times when there's a keypad. You have to punch in numbers. You have to go through the separate doors. There's all these little intricacies. You can find it, but you'll still be lost. So we want to, be ma we want to make sure that there are specific information that will allow us to give that person that we're inviting a heads up, something to look out for, something to watch out for. And the last reason is this, is that we know what it feels like to get frustrated when you cannot find a place. And so we don't want anyone who's coming to our church or any of our activities to experience that frustration. We want to be very clear so that you can come and experience that all that God has for you. Now, I think in the same way as I have given these five reasons for directions that we provide in our church, that all of us are on a spiritual journey. 
And that journey is going to lead us to a destination. And all I can say is that that destination will come to a conclusion when we die and when we have to stand before God. And so we as a church and Pastor Bo and I, we want to make sure that we want to have as least number of barriers as possible so that you may be able to hear the truth, to know who this Jesus Christ is, and so that your destiny will be completely changed for eternity. Another reason is that we want to give you helpful information that will guide you on this journey because we cannot do this journey for you. You're on this journey and you got to be able to discover things along the way. Thirdly, is that with people's experiences uh, in this journey, we, we want to make sure that this experience is one that they will be able to experience Jesus Christ. And so we're doing everything possible, and we want to do everything possible so that you can experience that. So with that, I'm just going to have Pastor Bull share a little bit about how we're going to do this for the next three weeks so that we're all on the same page. Yeah, so actually, we're really thankful that, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had some of you fill out a survey uh, and asking some questions, and we compiled those questions. Uh, some of the ET uh, executive team were able to help compile and categorize some of the questions, and we really felt that covering these topics would be very, very important for us. The way that we broke down the next three weeks under the three categories under relationship with the loss, and, and we broke it down according to just common apologetic topics that we often see that people have questions with. The first one is part one called credibility, and that's what we're going to talk about today, is the importance of truth, the importance of worldview. How does that affect what we believe? Is God real? How do I know that this is true? And this is going to really lead us to a discussion on how do we know that the Bible is true? How is the Bible credible in, 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 a, in a logical way, in a historical fashion? The second thing that we're going to talk about next week is part two, which is morality. Uh, that's gonna, we're going to be talking about the nature, the character of God. Why is there evil? Why is there suffering in this world if God is somehow so good and so big? And then the third week, we're going to be talking about destiny. And this is one of the questions that all of us want to know. Why are we here on this earth? Where are we going to go? And why is Jesus the only way? If there's so many other religions out there, how can Jesus be the only possible way that we can actually get to God? And so we wanted to actually share a little bit of our background as we go through these uh, parts because we realized that, you know, just talking about logic and some of you are really intellectual. You might be like, oh, I'm so excited for this. Uh, with others of us, I think it's helpful to weave some of our stories into, you know, our backgrounds and as we share about this. So, I mean, personally for me, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Um, I actually had a really bad impression of Christians growing up, and I thought they were very judgmental, very, like, kind of self-righteous. Um, but one thing that will always, always I was wondering about throughout my childhood was what is my greater purpose? And, and what is it that I can really find deep fulfillment in? Is it going to be my job? Is it going to be in relationships? And I kept on looking and searching for that. And it wasn't until I came to uh, University of Michigan back uh, however many years ago. Uh, I came to University of Michigan. I met a group of people called Life Group. And I think that's where I found a deeper significance and purpose that really just blew my, blew my whole world uh, out of the water. And I think that was a really powerful encounter for me to experience my greater purpose in life. So it's just a brief snippet. You can ask me more if you want to know the whole story. So. Yeah, for, for me, as many of you already know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. So my heart always breaks for the lost because I know what that feels like. And it wasn't until uh, some run-ins with the law and some things that I did I should not have done 
that uh, I heard the gospel for the very first time as my parents sent me off to this spiritual camp or this retreat. Little did I know that they were going to talk about Jesus and all that. I thought it was just hanging out, but uh, I was solely mistaken. But purposefully, God had a, had a reason for that. And that's when I heard the gospel message. Uh, that's where I came to know Jesus Christ, that my sister did, that my brother and then my mom and my dad was the last one. And it took them a long time just because I think just being a Korean male and just with pride, ego and all that, it took them a long time. But God worked in his heart. So my encouragement to you is that if you have family members who don't know Jesus Christ, continue to pray for them and believe that God is going to work. And through that whole process, one of the things that I did was after coming to Christ, I had no one to disciple me. So I really drifted away from my relationship with God and so many other things captured my attention. And it was in that moment when I was at the lowest point of my life, uh, even though everyone would say, oh, things are going so well for you, but I was so empty in my heart. And that's when I began to ask some of the philosophical questions, just like what Pastor Bo was sharing. Like, why am I here on this earth? Or what is my purpose in life? Uh, I, I, was think, I was looking for meaning and a sense of significance. And from there, I was seriously thinking about, well, what if I die? Then what's going to happen to me? So those types of questions began to crop up. And that's when I re decided to rededicate my life to Jesus Christ. And my life has never been the same since then. And so with a little bit of that background, both of us didn't grow up in the church. I, I hope this will encourage you as we do talk about just the process and the step in which some of these questions should be asked and hopefully it will be answered. Can I also say to those of you who grew up in the church, there are a lot of things that you should be happy and blessed about. That God protected you from certain things, that God has a purpose for you in that way. But also, can I just encourage us? There are a lot of things that you believe that you don't know why you believe. So, so it is our hope that through this next three weeks, that God will also strengthen your faith, those of you who grew up in the church, that what you do believe in right now, it is intellectually sound. It is reasonable to believe in it. So may it strengthen you. May it give you confidence that you don't have to shy away from people to be able to share what you believe in. And so I'm excited to be able to do that. So I want to lay down some foundational truths. And when I mean by foundational truths, I'm simply saying what we see and what we know of God and then what we know of human beings. And some of it, I, I think there's a general consensus. I think, and also, these are just 30 plus some years of doing ministry and just observing people and knowing people. So I want to lay that down kind of like a groundwork and as Pastor Bo was mentioning, there, are, there were so many good questions. Let me just say that, really good questions. But which, as you probably know by now, we're not going to be able to answer all of them. And therefore, this is just kind of like a teaser or if you want, like an appetizer. I know there's no such thing as appetizers in uh, Asia, but just, just think of it as an appetizer, just so you don't munch on. But if afternoon, you, all you, afternoon tea. After, there we go. It's afternoon tea. And so just think about it that way, and hopefully it will cause you to want to learn more and study this a little bit more. If you want to make appointments with Pastor Bo and I, we would love, for, uh, for, we'll love to meet with you and talk with you. Even talk to some of the other people from Life Group. I think there will be a, a really good discussion there. So let me just go ahead and lay some of these foundational concepts about God. First is this. God is knowable. He's not this distant person who doesn't care about us, but he, he actually wants to know us and he does know us but he wants us to know him so the first thing that i want to state up front is that god is knowable the second thing is this god is always working 
The Bible reminds us he neither sleeps nor slumbers. He's constantly working in our lives. That's why there's no such thing as coincidence or chance. Some of you who, have, who might not be a believer right now, you have a roommate who goes to this church. I don't think that's a coincidence. Some of you have ran into Christians all your life, but you're never, you haven't made a decision to be a, a follower of Jesus Christ. Those things are not coincidence. He's working because he loves you and he has a purpose and a plan for you. So he's always working. Some of us who might have fallen away or having all these doubts, that doesn't mean God is now silent. He sometimes, I, to me, I've always said doubts are good. It helps us to seek. It helps us to solidify. So some of us who might be struggling with some of the things of the Christian faith, I'm just wondering if God is working in your heart so he could solidify some of these convictions. The third thing is this, God's word is our foundation. We need to establish it. That's why we're going to talk about this a little bit, that God's word has to be our foundation for truth. And the fourth and last thing is God has to illuminate the truth to us. I have sat down with so many different people over the years, and you could present the most logical argument better than any other argument that this person will propose, and they will still reject it. And that's when I came to the conclusion that God is the only one who has to illuminate this. I could do, come up with like the three X's, I don't know, and uh, I, you know, I could come up with all the stuff, but it really will not matter. It really has to be the Spirit of God that will illuminate this. That's why I've been in prayer for this series. I hope some of you have been in prayer that God has to open up our spiritual eyes to see who he really is. Let me talk a little bit about some of the foundational concepts of human beings, who we are. The first is this, we want to be our own God. And that's the fact. The Bible tells us that and we see it in our own lives because we love control. The thought of not having control just literally brings anxiety. We worship ourselves. We're self-centered. We do things for ourselves. So there's a strong tendency in us to want to be our own God. Here's another foundational truth about human beings. We are blinded to the truth until God opens our eyes, as I shared earlier. So we have to understand that even though as we get frustrated because we can't understand everything, or some of us, the gospel message, you've heard it so many times, but you're still struggling with it, God has to be the one that will open up your eyes. The third foundational truth is that we are holistic beings so that our experience of God has to be emotional, intellectual and volitional you cannot just go to a, a a gathering and then you feel something and you're like oh my relation with god is closed even though that's helpful but you also have a mind therefore you have to experience god even through your mind and then a decision you have to make the volition of the will some of you you're all mind and you're afraid of letting, losing control of your emotions and so your experience is literally just cognitive and cerebral, and you're just thinking, okay, I love God, God is there, I am here, I worship God, you know, and so we got to try to experience, and try to do that with any other relationship, with your friends, with your spouse, or your future spouse, they're, gonna, they're not going to like you, that's like Mr. Spock, all right, so you got to be able to at least experience some of the emotions, and lastly, we are seeking in life to answer four specific questions, this is, this is the foundation of every human being. What are those four questions? First of all is this, where did I come from? It is the question of origin. The second question is this, what significance do I have? 
It is a question about meaning. That we, that's why when you think about your life right now, the things that you do, the things that you're pursuing after, is trying to answer some of these questions. The third question is this. Why is there evil and suffering in this world? It's a question of morality. Because we are living in a fallen world. And so we have been hurt. We have hurt other people. We see the things around us in the world that's happening. And so this question of why is there so much evil and suffering in this world? And last question is this. What will happen to me when I die? It is a question about destiny. If you haven't thought about it, wait until you're 50. You'll, you'll think about it. Wait until 60. You'll think about it. Right now, you have the whole future in front of you. But as you get older, some of these thoughts come into mind. Some of you have lost loved ones recently. These questions come into mind. What will happen to me when I die or depart from this world? So the reason why we're trying to do apologetics as we're talking about relationship with the laws is because we want to present a reasonable defense. Everyone say reasonable defense. Reasonable defense. For Christianity. We are trying to present a reasonable defense for Christianity. And also to give a per every person an opportunity to make a decision for Christ. Just so that you understand the history of it, the word apologetics, it doesn't mean apology. We're not apologizing for anything. That word apologetics comes from the Greek word, apologia. And the word apologia, if you break it up, the prefix apo means away. Uh, Legia means uh, speech or to talk. And so if you put this together, it means to speak away. Uh, this word apologia is used in the court of law, where when the accused stands and then gives a defense for why they should not be jailed or whatever the case may be. So they're explaining or talking away to be able to defend themselves. And that's why this Christian apologetics that we're talking about, the intention of it is not necessarily to convert people to Christianity. I want to make this clear. Apologetics is not necessarily to convert people to Christianity, but rather it's giving a reasonable defense of the truth in order to eliminate any barriers, to eliminate any excuses that a person might have to not to turn to Christ. But we cannot change a person. We cannot convince a person. As I shared earlier, it's God who has to open up our eyes and help us to see. And I will say this, as a seeker myself at one point in my life, I would say if you, if you are intellectually honest, what I mean by that is you're not doing mental gymnastics to overlook certain things, but you are actually over, you're, you're seeing different things that are happening in your life. You're asking, answer, or asking the right questions. I will say this confidently because I've gone through that process. It's out of all the options that will help us to understand this world. I think Christianity in that worldview has the best answer for some of these things that I just mentioned. Where did I come from? Why am I here on this earth? Why is there a problem with evil and suffering? And how is that going to be eradicated? And it's found in the cross. And we'll talk about that later on. And what's going to happen to me when I die? There is no other coherent, reasonable defense that I have seen that can answer all those questions through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why we're hoping that through our time in the next three weeks, 
that will encourage you and help you on this journey of seeking of who God is. So in this process, we need to address a couple things. I know you're like, hurry up, get to the meat already, right? Uh, but we want to give at least some expectations because we do have limited amounts of time. We have an hour, and I know many of us, we could go on for hours having these kind of discussions. And if you, we're sh we'll share some resources at the end, but literally there's hundreds of articles and resources that we could pour through. But we wanted to give some at least expectations up front so that we know that what we're going to cover and that you know what to expect. I think the first thing is that we're not going to be able to go in depth with every single topic. Like Pesha mentioned, it's kind of like a teaser or a preview of some things that you can look into. And hopefully as you also meet in life groups this coming week, you'll be able to dig deeper into some of those things. We encourage you also to go online, Google search, or use some of the resources that we'll share with you to go deeper in depth. The second thing is that there's a difference between skepticism and cynicism. There's a, there's a difference. Uh, I, I was a cynic, actually, in the beginning when I was in high school. Again, like I mentioned, I had a really poor view of Christians. I had nothing to want to do with the faith. And when people would share with me about Christianity, I'd be like, yeah, that's a bunch of baloney. Or that's a bunch of, you know, whatever. It's just like you're being self-righteous and you're telling what everyone should do and you know I don't want to have anything to do with that and so no matter what kind of logical proposition people would present to me I would just shrug it off well that's different than a skeptic and a skeptic is someone who's actually trying to seek the truth in order to understand it in order to believe whatever that truth may be they're open because I, they, I want to seek it I want to know but a cynic is someone that even though you explain the truth even though they're confronted with the truth they don't want to believe they just want to prove themselves right, or maybe there are other things that are motivating them, but they don't want to believe. And our hope is that wherever you're at, that you can be a genuine skeptic, that you can genuinely seek out what is true. You might not believe everything that we present here, but you at least are asking what is true, and I want to find out what is true so that I may believe the truth. The, the third thing is that no matter how many things logically we present, that the most, one of the most helpful things is to experience truth in the context of Christianity and in the context of community. Experience is one of those things, and I, I will testify, I'm one of those people that I grew up like very math and science and evolution and all this stuff that doesn't, makes Christianity look stupid. And I would say like, come face to face, I will argue with any of you and say Christianity is wrong, God doesn't exist. But the thing that really convinced me personally was seeing the love that was exemplified in life group, in community, that really convinced me that there was something more to this Christianity than what I had ever experienced before. So hopefully, as we experience some of these things together, that we can actually present this reasonable defense, that you can actually find out what the truth is. So the first thing that we want to start with is this whole concept of worldview. This whole concept of worldview and how that connects to absolute truth. Because many of you ask the question, how do we know that God is real? How do we know that absolute truth exists? How can you logically claim that there is this God up there when this world is just everything that we can see or touch? We can't see God. We can't prove, you know, scientifically or logically. How can we know? And so it starts with worldview and what we believe to be credible and true. And I wanted to read this, this quote from James Anderson. There's a, a, a website called, I don't know how to pronounce it, Ligonier? L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R.com. You can research it. You can find it. On, but there's an article called, What is a Worldview? And this is what he says. It says, A person's worldview represents his most fundamental beliefs and assumptions about the universe he inhabits. It reflects how he would answer all the big questions of human existence, fundamental questions about who and what we are, 
where we came from, why we're here, where, if anywhere, we're headed, and the meaning, purpose of life, the nature of the afterlife, and what counts as a good life here and now. So some of the questions that we just mentioned. <clears throat> few people think through these issues in any depth, and fewer still have firm answer to such questions, but a person's worldview will at least incline him towards certain answers and away from others. You might not have certainty about some of these questions, but I guarantee that you have some inclination toward one or the other. And that will color how you view truth and how you view God and the Bible and anything else. And he continues on. It says, Worldviews shape and inform our experiences of the world around us. Like spectacles with colored lenses, they affect what we see and how we see it. Depending on the color of the lenses, some things may be seen more easily, or conversely, they may de be de-emphasized or distorted. Indeed, some things may not be seen at all. And I think what he's saying here is really poignant. He's saying our worldview, it colors everything that we see. It, it colors everything that we see that for some of these most basic and fundamental questions and influences so that there are some things that we see in an extreme and there are other things we don't see at all that other people see very clearly. And I think worldview and our, and our idea of truth has to be considered because if we do not consider it, then there might be things that we totally miss out on that are very plain in sight. And there's lots of different worldviews out there. And even though many of us who are here sitting in this room right now, we might say, hey, I grew up in church and I have this Christian worldview. You might be surprised at some of the different beliefs that you might have that might be influenced by other worldviews. I would say it's those of us who didn't grow up in church, those of us who don't say, I'm a Christian, you might be the ones who are more honest about what your worldview actually is. And so in order to talk about worldview, I wanted to connect it with this whole idea of truth. And truth the reason why worldview and truth are so important is because your worldview uh, defines what you believe about truth. Your worldview defines what you believe about truth. And <clears throat> there's another uh, doctor, Dr. Pat Zuckeran, and in a website called Evidence and Answers. He says this. He defines this as truth. He says, truth that is defined as being absolute possesses the following qualities. Truth is a couple things here that he mentions. It's Discovered, it's not invented. It's transcultural, meaning it can be conveyed across different cultures. It's unchanging, it can be conveyed across time. Beliefs cannot change a truth statement no matter how sincere your belief might be. Truth is unaffected by the attitude of the one professing it. All truths are absolute and truth is knowable. And then he concludes, in order for truth to be absolute and holding these qualities, it must be grounded in a source that is personal, unchanging, and sovereign over all creations. Pretty much what he's saying is for truth to be truth, that truth must be founded in some higher power, some kind of God. Doesn't, we haven't gotten to the Christian God yet, but some kind of higher power, some kind of higher being that establishes that truth. Because if it's going to be discovered, not invented, that it can't be created by people. If it's going to be across cultures, it can't be dependent on one particular culture. If it's going to be a true statement, no matter how sincere you are, then it can't be based on how genuine your beliefs are. Truth is truth. And I think this is important because different worldviews don't necessarily agree that absolute truth exists. And we want to actually look at different worldviews that have different views of truth and therefore different views 
of God. So let me go through three different or four different worldviews that have different views of truth. It's an evaluation of truth in different worldviews. This is the this is the fun part. All right. The first one, the first worldview that's very common is that there's no absolute truth. There is no absolute truth. Uh, a lot of you will know this and uh, worldviews such as postmodernism, relativism, new age spirituality, and uh, without going into all of those different terms, you can look that up yourselves. I'm not going to go into every nuanced definition because some of you might be like, well, postmodernism is different than relativism. They're different. We're not going to go into all the details, but generally they all agree that there's no absolute truth. And if you subscribe to postmodernism or relativism, then there are some corollaries of relativism, corollaries simply something that follows based on this thing that you believe. So a common corollary of relativism is you'll hear things like, well, all truth is relative. Or you might hear something like, God might be real for you, but he's not for me. Or you might hear this, like, we have all our own perspective, but no one can know what's actually true. Because it's just your perspective. And then those of you who are like, oh, I grew up in the church, I'm Christian, I don't have any of these worldviews, you'll be surprised at how much you believe truth is relative. This is what some Christians might say. Hey, I'm worshiping God my way. You have no right to tell me what God says. I'm sure some of us, we've said that here and there. Why? Because we believe at some point truth is relative. But there's a big problem with relativism. There are many logical problems with relativism. And I, I hope that we can all at least establish the premise as logic is something that we can all go off of. If you don't believe logic is a basic premise, then we can't even have this argument. So let's at least establish that logic is something that we call agree with. So if you believe that that's true, then there's a couple problems with relativism. First is that to say everything is relative is what? That's an absolute statement. You've just said, as a relativist, an absolute truth. So by being relativist, you have inherently contradicted relativism. Mm. Point number one. Okay, but that's not it. There's many other things. I wanted to ask you a question, actually. This is a statement that is quite interesting. I found this on one of the, the mm. apologetic websites. This is my statement. If what is true for me is that relativism is false, then is it true that relativism is false? It should be up there so you can read it. It should be on the phone there. Let me drink some coffee first. <laughs> I'm waking my uh, brain. If what is true for me because we're in this relativistic world, is that relativism is false, then is it true that relativism is false? So, Pastor Seth, just, why don't you just say no? If you say no, then what happens? If he says no... Possibly. Possibly, okay. Relativist. <laughs> if you say no to that question, then what is true for me is not true, which means relativism is false. Nice. Because then not everything is relative. But if you say yes and you agree, then relativism is false. True. So logically, already, <laughs> relativism, relativism cannot stand the test of logic, basic logic. So that's the first thing is everything is relative. That's an absolute statement. The second thing is that by using logic, you can deconstruct relativism. Third thing is that if you're truly relativistic, if you truly buy into relativism, you cannot claim any high moral ground. You cannot be moral. You cannot be moral. And why can you not be moral? Why? Because you say that if I'm really relativist, then what you say from your perspective must be true and what I say must be true as well. But I can't contradict you because I believe that all of us, what we say is true from our own perspective. 
And you give a common extreme example. It's like, if I believe that murder is right, and you don't believe murder is right, then I cannot, you cannot claim that I'm wrong. Because why? We're relative. But the problem is none of us believe that murder is correct. We're all moral in some way. And so I think that really shows that no one is truly, genuinely relativistic to the, to the nth degree. And sorry, last thing I, I just put up there is that you, you, some, of, some relativists will say, well, you can't use logic to explain relativism. You can't use logic to argue against relativism. Then I will say you're not really relativistic because in this argument, you're using logic, right? If you're saying you can't use logic to talk about relativism, but you're using logic to talk to me in this argument, then you're not really relativistic, okay? So I think there's a lot of problems with be, be, relativism. Be, be nice. Oh, sorry, be nice. Sorry. Wow. I apologize. <laughs> We love you guys, even though you're not relativistic. <laughs> well, you're not relativistic, but we love you. So, I <laughs> But I, I, I just want to pause here. I mean, that's why the cancel culture is very interesting. Because they're taking this moral high ground. But in many ways, they, they, they live such a relativistic life. So when someone says, this is what I believe, and they go, you're wrong, they're, they're now no longer relative. They're, they're making absolute statements. That's why I see the contradiction all the time when you look at our society today. So just a little side comment. Go ahead. So if relativism, if there's so many problems with relativism, then relativism postulates that there is no absolute truth. But if relativism doesn't hold any clear logical foundation, then possibly then there must be some kind of absolute truth. There must be some kind of higher power that actually does dictate that there is something that is outside of everything is relative outside of everything of who we are. So that's the first one, the first worldview, which is there is no absolute truth. The second one that, and I would say not, there's not a single person that only has one particular worldview. I would say most of us, especially if we grew up in a very international environment and culture, we actually take and pick from multiple different worldviews. And so if you, you identify with some of these multiply, that's, that's very accurate. Many of us, we might have these kind of things. The second one is that humans define all truth. Many of us, we come from a worldview where humans defy the truth. And some word that you might hear tossed out there is secularism, atheism, naturalism, humanism. And I will just use humanism because humanism is really the idea that there's nothing divine. There's nothing supernatural. Humanity is, is it. What we see with our eyes and our ears, what we observe, that's it. And there's a couple corollaries of humanism. Some things that you might hear is that science is the only thing that can define or discover what's true. Another thing you might hear is, if humanity is able to advance and learn, then why do we need God? There's no need for God. There's no need for supernatural. That was back then. That's for those other cultures that are behind. Another thing you might hear is, religion and God are outdated, antiquated, and useless in today's modern world. Fourth thing you might hear, and, and I know there's a lot of other things. I just want to give some examples. Fourth thing you might hear is that God was only useful as a crutch for those who couldn't explain things in the world. But now, today, we have science. We have mathematics, we have logic, we have reason, we don't need God. And so these are things that you might hear because ultimately what humanism believes is that humans define truth. We define truth. We are powerful enough, strong enough to know what is right with this world and what is wrong. But there's a problem with humanism similar to relativism. I'm going to give you two of them and explain why these are true or why these are problems. The first is that morality cannot coexist with humanism. And also, free will cannot coexist with humanism. Why? If you're a humanist, you do not believe there's anything supernatural, there's nothing divine, that you must believe that the material world is all there is. 
You might believe in the Big Bang. You might believe that science can explain everything. So therefore, everything is a collection of atoms, molecules, chemical reactions. Well, if you believe that everything is simply reactions, molecules and atoms hitting one another, then how do you have any justification for morality? Again, the same question. Why is killing someone wrong? Why is survival of the fittest wrong? Why is evolution, evolution talks about survival of the fittest. So if I am a person, I'm trying to survive, and by killing someone else, that helps me to survive. Why is that a problem? There's no morality to state because everything is an at atomic interaction that I cannot have any moral ground to say killing is wrong. Same with free will. If everything is an interaction, a bouncing of different atoms, then everything is what we call deterministic. Deterministic means everything is predetermined. If you're genuinely humanistic, then you are far more believer in fate and destiny than Christians are sometimes, surprisingly. But the thing is, many, most of us are not. We believe in morality. We have morals. We believe in free will. We believe that our decisions matter. But if you're genuinely humanistic, then it's very difficult to have any sense of morality or any sense of free will. Third thing that's a problem with humanism is that reality doesn't affirm humanism. And just briefly, in history, the reason why humanism came into the play was the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, some of you know that started in Europe and kind of spread out throughout the world. And it was this idea that because we have science, because we have reason, we could take over the world, we have all these advancements, and we don't need anything, we don't need religion anymore. But the problem, you know what happened after the 15th, 16th, 17th century? World wars happened, people died. Do you really believe that people now are happier than they were previ previously? Has the world gotten better because of technology? Do you procrastinate less? <laughs> Do you get hurt less in your relationships? Are your family less broken than they were a couple hundred years ago? No. There's no, if you look to science, there's no scientific evidence that say we are better off as a species than we were several hundred years ago. And so reality and history doesn't affirm that humanism is actually a logical and a true worldview to have. Humanity cannot define the truth. And if humanity cannot define the truth, then there must be something supernatural. There must be something beyond humanity that is true. So that's the third one. The four, uh, sorry, that's the second one. The third one is that not only, so we talked about there's no absolute truth. We talked about humans define the truth. The third one is that we are all part of truth. We are all part of truth, and I would say this definitely covers a lot of more Eastern philosophies. Hinduism, kind of this um, kind of Zen Buddhism, um, kind of New Age philosophy. Uh, a couple other words for that are like pantheism, polytheism, pluralism, where everything is right. We're all the same. We're all the same. Common, common corollaries of pluralism. Something they oftentimes hear is Christianity is too arrogant, narrow-minded, exclusive. There's no way such an exclusive, arrogant, and intolerant religion could be true. Second thing is that we must be tolerant and accepting of all truths from all perspectives. That's something that you oftentimes hear. Third thing you'll see is that all faiths eventually lead to the same truth. Many of you probably have heard of the elephant analogy. Anyone heard of the elephant analogy? Where religions will say, we're all like blind people just feeling different parts of an elephant. From different perspectives, you might feel a nose, you might feel a body, you might feel a leg. And we all might think that we're seeing something different, but really it's all the same. And so they'll oftentimes use that analogy to promote this ideal of pluralism. But there's many pl problems also with pluralism. The first is that pluralism's argument 
is that something that is arrogant, narrow-minded, and exclusive has no bearing on its validity. How many, how many of you know some great sports players who are arrogant? Does their arrogance make them any less great as a sports player? No. So it doesn't matter how arrogant or exclusive you are. It has no effect on how good or how true something is. But that's oftentimes the argument that a lot of pluralists will use to criticize Christianity and defend pluralism. Second thing is that pluralism contradicts itself by being intolerant of intolerant worldviews, right? Interestingly, one of the uh, basics of pluralism is that we, everything is tolerated except for those who intolerate. Do you guys catch that? Right? Everything is okay except for those of you who say it's not okay. Which contradicts the very premise of pluralism. And so logically, it doesn't hold water. The third thing is that similar, pluralism contains problem, problems in logic. Um, and I, I don't want to go into all the different religions, but some religions will say, your religion is just as valid as mine because we're all part of the same thing. But the problem is if you look at certain religions, they say very explicitly, we're exclusive. Christianity will say Christianity is the only way. Islam will say Islam is the only way. Judaism will say Judaism is the only way. How can every single one of those be true at the same time? It doesn't make sense. Because if pluralism is really true, they will say Christianity, Islam, Judaism, they're all the same, they're all true. But then Judaism, Islam, and Christianity will all say, you're all not true. <laughs> it, it doesn't make sense. Logically, it doesn't hold water. And so for pluralism to say, we are all part of truth, we all are truth, doesn't logically make sense. So there must be some exclusivity of truth. There must be one truth that is absolute, that is true that we have to know, that we have to discover, we have to understand. And that leads us to the fourth one, which is the Christian worldview. And the Christian worldview states simply that Jesus Christ is truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. John 14, 6, this is what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then John 8, verse 32, it says, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I'm not going to go through all the logical explanations because throughout the next couple sermon series, we're going to talk a little bit about why Christianity is true and then also we're going to talk about why the Bible is true. But I challenge you to find a single worldview or truth statement that says not only is truth something that's just objective and absolute truth, but truth is something that actually comes down to meet you, that comes down to transform your life, that comes down and wants a relationship with you. There's no other worldview that claims that. And I would say that is the good news, that Jesus Christ is the truth. The truth is in a person. That person wants a relationship with you. That person that wants a relationship with you wants to give you life and freedom and hope. There's no other worldview like it. And I hope that as we discover, as we evaluate some of these different worldviews, you'll begin to see not only is absolute truth something that is to be believed, but that Jesus Christ is our absolute truth. And that's why we need to look into Scripture and why Scripture in the Bible is so credible. Amen. Are you guys still with us? Okay, turn to somebody next to you and are you still with us? <laughs> I would say the things that we just talked about, only a small pocket of you really enjoyed it. The rest of us are like, that is so much information overload. Uh, and, but everything that Pastor Bo was saying is so important. If you really understand what he's saying, I think what I'm going to be talking about next 
will have some credibility. That's what we're trying to talk about. With the worldview that you have, with the worldview that I have, that is how we're going to look at the world and answer those questions that we talked about. And so if there is an absolute truth, and that's outside of ourselves, and what Pastor Bo has introduced is that it is in the person of Jesus Christ, then one of the things that we have to look at is one of the foundational truths, which is what? That the Word of God will allow us to know who this God is. Now, as many of you have grew up in the church, you, you have sang those songs, you, you know that the Bible, all this, but as soon as you enter into high school or even possibly, I mean, definitely in college or even in your workplace, you realize not everyone believes that the Bible is true. And you sit there and you're like, oh gosh, Jonah and, and the whale, uh, oh Lord, you know, they lived this long. Like, how am I going to explain all these things? And sometimes you feel like you have to know all these answers. And to that, let me just say this. You have more evidence, or we as believers in Jesus Christ, we have more evidence for the credibility, the reliability of Scripture than any other written work in history. So it will be almost foolish for anybody who dismisses the Word of God. So such questions as, is the Bible true? Is it reliable? Aren't there errors in the Bible? How is God's word inspired? So there, there will be these types of questions. I'm going to try to succinctly try to explain this as clearly as possible. So let me put it this way. Let me give you two Bible passages to kind of use that as a foundation, and we'll talk through it. The first one is this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I'm going to read it from the ESV version. It says this, and on the yellow section, will you read it out loud with me? It says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This phrase, breathed out by God, is where we get this idea of the Bible being inspired by God. Let me read it from the New Living Translation and read the yellow section with me. It says this, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for, to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. So that shows us that this word is not somehow induced by just any regular person, but it, has to be, it was breathed out by God, inspired by God literally outside of human beings, but using the human being in their intellect, their writing, God used them as tools to write his holy words. The second verse is this, Second Peter, for, uh, verse 1, verse 20 through 21. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. Why don't you read the yellow section with me? It says this, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding. Or from human initiative. No, these prof those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke God. So once again, it wasn't their own idea, their own initiative, but the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, moved those people to write the very words that were breathed out from God. Let me read from the Good News translation and also gives us a different understanding of it, but the same concept. 
Read the yellow section with me. It says this, Above all else, however, remember that none of us can explain by ourselves a prophecy in the scriptures. For no prophetic message ever came just from the human will, but people were under the control of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about that, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, they were controlled under it, and that's why they were able to write as they spoke the message that came from God. So superintended, God came, spoke to them through the power of the Holy Spirit, used human writing, and they were writing the Word of God. Now, as we're talking about this, I want to give you quick four reasons why I believe Bible, the Bible is inspired, it's inerrant, and it's infallible. Infallible means that you can trust it. It's trustworthy. And I was thinking about how am I going to present these four things? And God inspired me. Not like the Bible inspired, but God gave me this thought. And I'm going to use the word bank. And some of you who don't know English colloquialism, when you hear the word, you could bank on it. Or this is bank. You know what they're trying to say? Okay, some of you are like, I don't know what that means. That means that it is sure and it's going to come to success. It's going to be, there's going to be fruition. And so that's why I want to use this word bank to help us realize that you can trust God's word. And to, it, it, to, be, to be his word that has been inspired, breathed out through these apostles to write the very words and also even through the prophets. So here's the first thing. The B stands for biblical prophecy. All throughout the Bible, we see all these prophecies. If you've ever read the Bible, you'll see all these prophecies. And they were recorded many, many years ago, but then now you'll see many of them being fulfilled. Uh, let me give you one, or actually several here. The first one is the prophecy of Israel. If you know your Bible, if you look at uh, Isaiah chapter 11, also in Ezekiel 37, you will notice that there were prophecies about Israel being who were scattered, that they'll come together and become a nation. That was a prophecy. And that prophecy was actually fulfilled on May 15th, 1948, when Israel became a nation. So here is God's word actually becoming fulfilled. Here's another example, the prophecy of world kingdoms. In Daniel chapter 2, also in Daniel chapter 7, you'll see that Daniel the prophet, he's prophesying about these four different kingdoms, uh, of the Babylon, Persia, and Greece, and Rome, and how they're going to rise up, and then these empires will fall. And that's exactly what happened in history. You don't have to check out all these other scriptures. Just go to your history books, and they will tell you, and it became true. Another one is the prophecy of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you look at all the prophecies in the Old Testament, you will notice that there are over 300 prophecies that are pointing to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ fulfilled every single one. Now, think about it this way. For one person to fulfill two or three prophecies, that would have been amazing. But to fulfill over 300, we have to say there's something about biblical prophecy that God supernaturally spoke into through these prophets and it became true. That's the B. So the B is what? Biblical, biblical prophecy, all right? The A is archaeological discoveries. Now, we have to realize this. Time and time again, archaeology, right, uh, or archaeological findings 
constantly supports the Bible rather than disproving the Bible. Think about the places, events, uh, the dates. They've all been proven to be true through archaeology. Every single time. If we're to put it another way, let me put it this way. There's no archaeological discovery that has ever contradicted biblical reference. Ever. So when you think about that, you realize, wow, we have ar- you know, archaeological evidence behind the truthfulness of the inspired word of God. Now, let me give you a couple examples. Some of you are like, oh, whatever, I'm not into ar- archaeology and all that stuff. You should. It's, it's pretty cool. Because our family actually went to Greece and we went through uh, this one exhibit where they found this really ancient uh, civilization. It was so cool. I mean, they quarantined it off. They made it into a whole museum almost looking thing. And it was fascinating. You realize just even hundreds of years ago, hundreds of thousands of years ago, that there was a civilization uh, that existed there, right there in Greece. Let me give you two examples. There's many, but I'm just going to give you the top two that just recently came up um, and the one that's really famous. The first one is the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1947, there were some shepherds uh, near the Dead Sea as they were kind of tending their sheep. They ended up finding uh, some jars, kind of like clay jars. And when they opened it up, they realized, or they didn't realize fully, but they found some scrolls. And they held on to it for a little bit because they didn't know what it was. But then they decided to submit that to the government and they realized that these were the Dead Sea, just the whole scroll of Isaiah. And there were multiple caves. So you'll see some pictures here. I wanted to show you some pictures. These were the caves in that area, which is I don't know how many miles. It's about seven, some miles away from Jericho. And so these caves were inside of them were hidden some of these scrolls. Here's some other pictures. It were, they were placed in these jars that they found and dug up. Really fascinating. The scrolls fit right inside of those clay jars and preserved for many, many years. And this is what they found. They found a whole parchment scroll of the book of Isaiah. You will also notice when they look closely is there a, yeah, when, when they look closely at this, you know what they found? They found that this was the scroll of Isaiah. And guess what? They found out that the only errors were like punctuation marks and little words that have changed, but pretty much identically to the whole book of Isaiah. What, what, what is the significance of this? It shows that the many of the prophecies of the Old Testament book in Isaiah was referring to whom? Jesus Christ, the Messiah that was to come. That actually was written many, many years before Jesus Christ came. And so these kind of archaeological discovery is once again giving proof that the Word of God has been sustained and God has preserved His Word. Here's another quick example. is Pontius Pilate's stone and Pontius Pilate. Uh, ring. In 1961, a piece of limestone was discovered and with the inscribed name of Pontius Pilate. So here's a picture that I want you to see. It's hard to see it, but on the bottom portion, it, it, if, if you read this, you will notice that it says Pontius Pilate in, in the Aramaic or even in Latin. And so once again, 
what we see in scripture, now history, through archaeology, it is proving that Pontius Pilate was an actual real figure. Another thing is in 2018, so this is just recently, archaeologists found that there was a 2,000-year-old copper alloy ring bearing the name of Pontius Pilate. So here's a picture that you will notice. And so the one on the left is the one that they actually found. And then the one on the right is the one that they kind of use computers to generate it. And it says in the lettering of Pontius Pilate. So once again, we're seeing through archaeological discoveries and findings that everything that the Bible talked about, it is now proving itself through archaeology. So let me, let's close out with the next two. So once again, the B is what? Biblical prophecy. The A is archaeological discoveries. And the N is number of manuscripts, number of manuscripts. So uh, we want to talk about, because the number of manuscripts or the, the uh, validity of something is increased when you know that there's many more, more historical documents that can affirm that. Um, since there wasn't technology, they didn't have, you know, Microsoft Word, you couldn't just copy files and just print it out and say, okay, like, here's the printing press or distribute it on digital devices. So the way that they actually copied manuscripts was by hand. And uh, in the Old Testament, in the olden days, firstly, it was oral tradition. Actually, oral tradition was preserved very meticulously. Some of you are like, I can barely memorize some basic facts in biology. But they would memorize whole, the whole Old Testament. That was their job. That was their role. That was their life. And then as the oral tradition began to be passed down, they would start to write, and they would copy down these, these writings onto manuscripts. And like Pastor said mentioned, the Dead Sea Scroll discovery actually proved that it was accurately covered across the years because you compare different manuscripts from different years and you look at the differences. And when you see and you realize that the manuscripts are very similar, I mean, you realize a couple of things. Number one is that they were really good at their job. <laughs> they did a really great job copying faithfully. Why? Because they believed it's the word of God. They believed that it was divinely given to them. So of course they wanted to be careful that they did it exactly correctly. But I think the second thing is that this is, it's credible. Knowing that there are several manuscripts across centuries that are accurate, that have minimal problems or minimal differences, really shows that there is something true and faithful about Scripture. For the New Testament, so that was the Old Testament, right? That Sea Scrolls are about the book of Isaiah, which is the Old Testament. For the New Testament, there's also even greater certainty. We know more about the New Testament than the Old Testament. Uh, the New, New Testament, most of the letters and most of the writings were written sometime between 45 to 90 AD. And there are fragments that we have that date back to 120 to about 150 AD. That means from when it was first written to the manuscripts that we have, there's only a difference about 35 to 100 years or so. And this is the criticism oftentimes you'll hear about the New Testament. Many people will say, yeah, the New Testament can't be true because they were probably legends that were just made up. That after people told stories, then the stories got, you know, you know, you know, when you tell stories, it gets a little bit more fantastic each time you tell it, right? There's one time you shot a ball, and then, then the second time you did a dunk, and then the third time you did like a wheelhouse, right? It just becomes more and more fantastic each time you talk and you share it. But the fact that it happened only within 35 to 100 years, within the same generation that some of those eyewitnesses were there, to know that those were copied helps to affirm that those manuscripts that we have still today are accurate representations of the original. 
and we have understanding of this. And another thing about the New Testament manuscripts of the original Greek, they're close to about 5,000, 5 to 6,000 original Greek manuscripts that we have. Far more than what we have of most historical documents. That we all believe in. That we all believe in. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to have a table of a couple of these documents. How many of you know Plato? How many of you believe Plato was a guy who existed? He is a great philosopher. A lot of things that we believe in Western thought today are based on Plato. Some of you are like, Plato, who's Plato? <laughs> Don't worry, he's, a, he's an old guy. So the number of copies that we have of Plato is, guess how many? It's seven. We have seven copies of Plato, and there's 1,200 years between the original and the copies that we have of him. Yet, every history class will refer to Plato and tell you that Plato was a real guy, he wrote real stuff, and his philosophy is true. Second thing, Caesar. Caesar from Rome, right? How many copies of his writings do we have? Ten. And the span between the originals and what manuscripts we have of his writing, 900 years, there's a gap. Another person named Aristotle. Many of us probably know Aristotle. How many copies of his stuff do we have? 49. And what's the gap between his writings and when the originals were created? 1,400 years. Yet all of us, Aristotelian logic is something that is so influential in Western thought processes. So much of Western democracy and philosophy is based on Aristotle, even though we only have 49 documents of what he wrote. Homer's Iliad. Some of you are like, Homer's what? Homer's Iliad, if you were part of an English class and you did Greek you know, mythology and stuff like that, 643 copies, 500 years is the gap. And then of the New Testament, just as comparison, we have 5,600 copies, and the gap is only 35 to 100 years. That's incredible. That is incredible that all these other philosophies, Greek mythology, Roman history, all these leaders, we believe in them, we believe they're historical, we believe they're accurate, yet we have so few copies of them, and the gap between the originals and what we have is so great, yet we are not willing, oftentimes we are not willing to believe in the New Testament, which is... We have so many copies of those manuscripts, and many of those copies are only 35 to 100 years different than when the original was created. And this really just helps us to understand that the New Testament is a very credible piece of work that is accurate to what it was originally written. And so then, then that means we, we have to consider what is written in the New Testament. And is that possibly true? I mean, one thing just to also note, just as an example, Homer's Iliad, it's a classical work. There's a, uh, has a lot of manuscript dis- discovery. 643 is a decent amount. Stills fall short. But one thing is that when you look at the accuracy of the writing and you compare the differences between the errors, when you compare it, you can do some criticism. Homer's Iliad is 97% accurate. The New Testament is 99.5% accurate which shows you the difference between the accuracy and the, and the scientific archaeology that has been done in New Testament scholarship that is really, really substantial. So that is the, the number of manuscripts and why that's so important for just our understanding of Scripture. Okay. We're going to bank on this, all right? The B is what? Biblical prophecy. A is archaeological discoveries. The N is the number of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. Now the K is the knitted consistency of Scripture. It is amazing how the Bible is written by 40 different authors from all different works of life, 
walks of life. We're talking about some who are doctors, some who are fishermen, some people who are kings. All these different backgrounds coming together to write one central theme. It's about the redemption of God's people through the person of Jesus Christ. If I were to take this, and let me, I'm getting excited here, but okay, I, I, let me, I'll, just stick, I'll, I'll stick to the table here. If I chose 100 of you and gave you all blank sheets of paper and I said, in the next 30 seconds, I want you to write a statement. What do you think is the probability of those 100 people writing the same thing towards the same direction? It'll be very slim. Nearly impossible. But to think that over 40 different authors over a long span of time, wrote about the same thing, which is about Jesus Christ, the redemption of God's people. That's the common thread that knitted together, the consistency of it. The Old Testament talks about Jesus and what is to come. Jesus, as you look into the scripture, you'll notice he quoted the Old Testament, how they're knitted together. It's not separate. There's incredible unity in what was written. I think something else that comes up is, well, pastor or pastors how about those discrepancies I, I love those kind of questions aren't there errors one of the best things that you got to do about counseling is always ask a question with a question so i'll simply say what errors well you, you know no i don't which one are you referring to and they don't know but once in a while, you get those real smart guys. You go, well, you know that discrepancy in Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 7. I'm like, oh, okay, I know that one. Those of you who don't know that one, let me kind of explain it to you. There is a, a passage, two passages, Matthew chapter 8, starting from verse 5 through 13. And there's another passage from Luke chapter 7, starting from verse 2 to verse 10. In those two different accounts of the same story, it is the story of the centurion, the Roman commander, who had a servant who was ill. And when you read those two stories, you realize, wait a minute, there seems to be a discrepancy here because one, trans one book, gospel account, says that the centurion, the commander of this uh, 100 people, were the, he was the one that went to Jesus to bring Jesus over. The other one says that he sent his Jewish elders to go and get Jesus. Wait a minute, isn't that a discrepancy? Isn't that an error? And that's when you gotta go, ah, like a philosopher, ah, that's a apparent contradiction. What are you talking about? If my wife and I were talking and I said, man, I, 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 I saw 20 people at church today. And then she says, oh, I, I, I saw 10. You could look at that and say, wait, were there 20 people or were there 10 people? But as you know, there could have been 200, 300. It's because it's a perspective in which I'm sharing the 20 people and same with her. Now, let me kind of help us to understand this a little bit more. When you think about these passages, and I wanted to highlight this one because I think this is very important, is that you could reconcile this simply by saying that the centurion came to Jesus to request the healing of the servant. But then on the other side, you can see that, but it doesn't account for that he could have also have told the Jewish elders to go. But it was at a different time sequence. But the event was the same. Now, I decided 
when you think about this, the more confusing it'll get. So I decided to illustrate it with a demonstration. I need three bold people who would just raise your hand. Can, can I get three? Just quickly. Okay, Makoto. Okay, let's... Asiyam, yeah, we need a girl. Where's Asiyam? Asiyam, okay, there. Okay, Makoto, Asiyam. Okay, let me say this. You cannot have taken our baptism class. Because if you have taken our baptism class, you will know this, all right? So anyone who did not take our baptism class, so Asiyam. Anyone else? Come on, we need two more quickly. Yes? Your name again? That's right, come on. Priscilla and Alvin. Okay, so I, I'm going to have you three uh, do something for us, okay? But before I do that, I need drinks of water. That's <laughs> well. Do you guys know that he, he's pretty good at basketball? But there was a time when he wasn't, but, you know, he, uh, he practiced hard and played really well, so... Praise the Lord. Here, yeah, give me a little... Uh, okay. Do you guys all know Carissa? Okay, she's the one who's uh, doing our PowerPoint. And she's looking at me like, why aren't you putting on your mask? So I'm going to put on my mask. Yerwin, <laughs> how long have you played piano? <laughs> what? Ten years! Oh my God! <laughs> wow! <laughs> Peter, weren't you Yorin's roommate at one time? No, I was Darren. Oh, you were Darren's. Yeah. Where's Darren? Oh, hey Darren, how you doing? Doing good? Okay. Calvin, how you doing? Doing good? Okay, good. Uh, can you tell me what's in here? Hi. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Oh, thank you for helping us. Yeah. Okay, amen. Okay. Okay. So we're going to come back here. Time is running out. We don't have much time. You want to go? Okay. Okay. All right. By the way, Dr. Yap, thank you for sharing. That was great. Okay, that was great. Okay, I'm going to ask those three people to leave the room. Follow Leon. And I'm going to call you one by one to come in, okay? And then we're going to escort them in so they're not going to hear us. So this is what we're going to do. I am going to invite them one by one and ask them to describe what just happened. And in many ways, you're going to find out a lot about their personality. And you can also remember how good their memory is. <laughs> but this is the point that I want to make and make sure that we're clear on. Is that even though they might tell a different account, what I want you to be able to find out is from their perspective, they're sharing an account. But did they get the gist of what happened? Are you with me? Can you bring the first person? It's Asiyam. Come on up. Come to, come to the front. Come to the front. Yes. 
We'll give you the mic. Yep, your one has the mic. I see him. That was very bold of you to volunteer. Okay. But uh, can you face? Can, uh, can you can you face the congregation? Okay. And what I want you to do is, I want you to describe in your own words, from your own perspective, what happened after I drank my water. Yeah, it was all over the place. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay, it was all over the place, okay. Yeah. But try to describe it as best as you can. Okay, so I And think... you could demonstrate if you need to. Okay, you went over to people. Okay. And then you were talking about basketball. Oh, okay, stuff. talking about basketball, okay. And then elbow bump. Elbow bump, oh, yeah. good. And then I think you went to your one. Oh, I did, yeah, okay. Yeah. Talked about piano. Okay, piano. Yeah. Okay. And then, oh no, Carissa? Uh -oh. Mask? Mask? Okay. Mask? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carissa right? Mask. Yeah, Carissa Mask. Wait, wait, Yorwin which order Piano. is this first? I think Carissa first. Okay, Carissa and first, and then you're in, okay. Yeah, and then, and then you suddenly went to the back. I suddenly went. I flew. Yeah, I you walked. flew. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, okay. I suddenly did, went to the back, you okay. Did, yeah, through the yeah. aisle. And then I think you talked to Peter. I talked to Peter. And then some other guy. Some I other dude. I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't remember. Some 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 centurion. Some yeah, centurion. Yeah, yeah, I don't remember yeah. the name. Yeah, yeah I don't know. But yeah. one guy at the back. Yeah. And then and then you went to that room. Okay, I went to the room. Yeah, I don't know who was there. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. It's a one-way mirror. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. Yeah, and then I think you went back. And I went back. Yeah. Okay. All right. Next person. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Priscilla, come on up to the front. What I'm going to have you do is, in just under a minute, or as best as you can, quickly describe. You can come up here and face the, the, the church there. And in your own words, from your own perspective, tell me what happened after I drank my water. Do you remember what happened after I drank my water? So can you explain as best as you can? Um, you went to Carissa. Oh, I went to Carissa. Okay. And then you wear a mask. Okay. And then you went to Yerwin. Okay. And then you, you asked him how long he played his piano. Okay. Which was 10 years. 10 years. And then you went to Fearsang. And then um, you asked him if he was a roommate with Yerwin. Oh, okay. And then he said it was with Darren. And then you talked to someone. And then that someone got scared. <laughs> okay. Okay. Good. And then you went back and then told us to leave. Okay. Wow. That's pretty good. Okay, not yet, not yet, not yet, not yet. Uh, no, no, no. You, you can sit down, but not, not, not. Don't bring the person yet. Don't bring the person yet. Can I ask the the, the, the congregation? Did she forget anything? Which one? Doctor Yab. Also, what else? Pastor Bo. The room, right? But once again. Right? She remembered your one, I don't know why, and 10 years. <laughs> I would have been mesmerized too. Um, and then all that stuff over there, right? Very interesting. So are, are, you guys, are you guys following along what's happening here? It's not exact. It's from their perspective. You could tell some people are a little bit more specific. And this is the last one. I, I would love to hear this one. Who's the next person again? Alvin! <laughs> Dr. Leon, come on up here. Do you know as a future pediatrician, 
You have to know things in detail. It's very important. Okay. So. I'm going to ask you, if you remember, after I drank my water, I did some stuff. Can you, as best as you can, describe to the church what happened after I drank my water? You drank your water? <laughs> 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 okay. So basically, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, I did. Okay, I did not know. Oh, is that your kid? Is that your kid? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you talked to people about his basketball. Okay. And then he was like, oh, you were like, oh, he wasn't good before, but then he trained. Oh, oh okay, okay. <laughs> and then afterwards, you went to Carissa, talked about slides or something like that. Uh, and then you ran to the back. Oh, I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you talked to Peter, asked Peter if... Your own was his roommate, but he said no. Uh -huh. It was Darren uh -huh. or something like that. He couldn't hear. I heard Darren. And then uh, you uh -huh. went to Darren, talked to Darren a little bit. Then you went to the back. You said hi to that Grace. I think you said hi to Grace. Uh -huh. And then you went inside the sound booth and talked to someone there. Uh -huh. And then you ran back because time was running out or something. And then you stopped in between me and Chris, gave us elbow bumps. Oh, okay. And then you thanked Dr. Yap for... Um, sharing, and mm. then you came back up. Wow. Thank you. You just said, grab a seat. Can I ask you what happened? Same experience, but three different accounts. Some left some things out. Some added stuff that no one else had. But it actually happened. So the point I'm trying to make is this. Whatever discrepancy that you see in scripture, oftentimes it's an apparent contradiction. That's why the Bible is beautiful. Because we're talking about 40 different authors over many, many years that they were writing about the redemption of humankind. That Jesus Christ was going to come and deliver us from our sins so we could have eternal life. My encouragement to you is this as we close here. Is when you think about truth you got to know where the source is from and as pastor bo was mentioning it's about our worldview and that's why in order to talk about anything else from this point on as we talk about truth about morality and destiny we had to first establish that the bible is reliable is inerrant and infallible and inspired by god and out of scripture, we get to know some of these answers. That's why, if I can kind of encourage us, is a couple next steps. The first is this, read your Bible, very simple. If this is the word of God that will, has been breathed out by God, he wants to speak to you. So read your Bible. The second thing is this, resource or research on the doubt. Some of you have doubts. There's a lot of questions, and that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. I'm thankful for our different ministry teams that we have. Uh, the, our technology team, they actually printed out or they put in our church app a resource with about 10 different websites. That they have a lot of great search functions where you could type in like inerrancy of scripture or is the Bible true, whatever questions you have, and you'll be able to find a lot of those answers. So it's right up there. So if you look at it in our church app, you can get that. So do some research on some of those things that you have doubts on. And the last one is this, is rely on God 
to show you the truth. So pray, ask God, help me to see, open up my eyes. I want to see the truth. With that in mind, can I ask us to stand together as we close out here? What we talked about, we could have probably done it in a three-month sermon series. I mean, this is as broad of a stroke that you can get. But I hope that it at least got you interested. And you'll do some research on your own to find out. Because I will say this, if everything that the Bible is saying is true, that means that some of us cannot plead innocence and say, I did not know. And the thing about the Bible is that it's not just about punishment and wrath of God, but this book actually gives us a lot of hope. And I think for many of us, when we think about life and the things that you're going through right now, there might be a situation in your home. There might be a trial that you're going through, something difficult that you cannot overcome on your own. The Bible can speak into that. And he wants to offer, God wants to offer you hope through his word. One thing that I will challenge you with is this. If some of you are not believers yet, I always tell them to check out all the other religions. Don't just jump into Christianity because it just sounds good. Check out all the other religions. Look into Judaism. Look into Islam. Look into Hinduism. Look into Buddhism. Taoism. Taoism. And some of you are like, is he a pastor? What is he saying? If I have the best hamburgers in all of Hong Kong, and I know that I have the best hamburgers in all of Hong Kong, you know what I'll tell you? Go to those restaurants, check it out. And then you come here, and you taste my hamburgers. And then you tell me which one's better. I am that confident that every single religion that you look into, it doesn't even come close to what Christianity says. Every, every single religion you could ever search and look into, it says that all of us need to reach up to God. That's why you gotta pray, you gotta do all this stuff. You gotta try to be good. You gotta let all your good works outweigh all the bad works. That's all religion. But Christianity is the only religion that says there's no way we could reach up to God. So God came down to us in the form of a man named Jesus Christ. And he lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. And then he paid the price that we should have paid, which is death on the cross. There is no other religion that can not only claim that, but I can't wait until we get to that third part when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no other religion that says that this God resurrected from the dead. And I, we have proof for it too. I'll give you a little teaser. And the acronym is what the. <laughs> Those seven letters, what the, Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. And I can't wait to share that with you. And I'm telling you right now, wherever you may be, continue to seek. The Bible says, knock and the door shall be open. Seek and you will find. 
I believe that God will help you to find the truth. I'm going to ask us if we could just bow our heads for a moment. Just thank you for your patience as we've been kind of chugging through this. You have to build a lot of foundational truths. But can I just ask us right now, those of you, I want to first talk to those of you who are believers. Some of you are sitting there and you were listening and you realize, man, I don't know any of this stuff. Can I challenge you to get more equipped? Learn it so that you can be more confident that what you have believed in, it is so true. I'm telling you, it's going to build up your faith. And to those of us who are still yet to be followers of Jesus Christ and you're still seeking, keep on seeking. And don't seek just intellectually, but join a life group. Be a part of it. Because you could talk about love, but once you experience God's love in a tangible way, it will flip your life upside down. Get the intellect as you do the research and the emotion as you interact with people. And hopefully there will be a volition of your will where you make a decision to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm just going to ask us right now, as I've shared as some of the next step, can we just rely upon the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, and just pray a simple prayer. God, reveal yourself to me. And in whatever ways that He's going to, just pray that prayer. And this coming week in Life Group, as we study the Word of God and look a little bit more deeper into different worldviews and stuff, I pray that it will strengthen your faith and it will help you to take a step further in loving God and loving people around you. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.